The infinite turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar! This is Death by DVD, and I am your host, Harry Scat Sullivan. I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. And on this episode so good it'll make you want to eat a baby, we're talking about Anthropophagus from 1980, also known as The Grim Reaper, The Beast, The Savage Island, Anthropophagus The Beast, Anthropophagus The Grim Reaper, and much, much more. Directed by exploitation legend Joe Diamato, also known as... David Hills, Michael D. Caprio, Raph De Palma, Alexandre Borsky, Una Pierre, Robert Yip, once he was credited as Chang Lee Sun, Joan Russell, Dario Donati, Alexander Baraski, Stephen Benson, O.J. Clark, John Bird, Kevin Mancuso, Peter Newton, Anna Bergman, Michael Wotruba, Romano Gastaldi, and finally, their real name, Aristide Masachese, or Massachese, which I prefer a lot more because it makes me think about provolone, and brie, and gouda, mozzarella, parmesan, asiago, gorgonzola, mozzarella, camembert, manchego, grana padano, ricotta, edam, gruyere, munster, Monterey Jack, feta. Oh, feta. That's a Greek cheese. Which reminds me about the movie that we're supposed to be talking about, not cheeses and different names. Am I running this joke into the ground yet? I don't think it's overkill quite yet. And it's not really a Greek movie. It's a Greek movie by way of Italy, because it's an Italian production. And everyone involved in the writing, directing, and the producing of this movie were Italians. But it does take place on a Greek island and was mostly shot in Greece. Actually, I think it was entirely shot in Greece. And this movie was written by Aristide Massachese. I'm going to call him Joe Diamato, so I'm sure this introduction will be confusing because I said so many goddamn names. Who knows who's who anymore? But Aristide Massachese is mostly known as Joe Diamato, at least in North America, but as an exploitation director, which we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. And George Eastman is the other writer, also known as... Richard Franks, Lou Cooper, Alex Carver, George L. Eastman, Tom Salina, and their real name is Luigi Montefiore, which is such a great name. It's so pleasing to say Montefiore, but we all know him and love him mostly as George Eastman. Not only is the director of this movie an exploitation and cult legend, but so is George Eastman, the writer, and coincidentally, 
one of the stars of this movie. Now, I think that joke has finally reached overkill territory, but it was worth it and completely true. I just didn't make up all those names. That's what both of these gentlemen have been credited as, credited as for the last 50 so years. And I'm sure there's a bunch of names that I've left out. The director of this film, Aristide Massachusetts, better known, belovingly known as Joe D'Amato, is deceased. He died in 1999, but George Eastman is still with us. Mr. Luigi Montefiore, and I'll be referring to them from this point on entirely by the quote-unquote American names they picked for themselves, and maybe, if I remember to, I'll explain why these guys have so many names. But we really gotta get the hook in, so you don't stop listening, and actually talk about the movie, and then I'll get off subject and talk about the history of the writers and directors and some of the actors. And some of the actors are very important. A cast member from this film has just recently passed away, and really, it's the entire reason I wanted to do this film, because this person died, Tisa Farrow, and I wanted to watch some of their films and commemorate their amazing life, and I watched Anthropophagus and thought, you know what, let's just talk about it on Death by DVD. And here we are. So what is Anthropophagus and why do I call it a cult classic? Why do I call it a classic? Well, there's a, a lot of reasons for that. It's not something I do, it's just how things are and what the movie is. Certainly, by all means, you can say that Anthropophagus is an exploitation film. I think that's the, the most apt thing that you could say trying to give this a genre. Wouldn't just call it a horror movie. Some people like to call it a cannibal film. I digress a bit from that point because I think there are key elements to what makes a cannibal genre film and we'll get more into genres and cult classic and the meaning of exploitation why this is an exploitation film in just a moment but this movie only really has one of the elements which would be needed to make a cannibal film but let's just look at the title anthropophagus all that means is cannibal which I always thought was a little weird that the American release of this wasn't called just cannibal straight up I always thought that that would be such a a pulling in title you're going to the drive-in you want to go see a movie but you don't know what to see and there's a movie called cannibal playing I think that really pulls you in what the fuck's it about cannibals but equally anthropophagus it means the same thing and perhaps having the learned title, a word that you don't averagely hear or know that's not in English whatsoever, that also can pull people in. But calling it cannibal would give away a lot of what happens in the movie. And I guess I'll just say spoilers here for this movie that was made in 1980. I am going to talk about it from all directions, so you will know how it ends, you will know who dies and how they die and what happens. You already know that the movie's called Cannibal, and that really... Now that I've said it out loud, I realize, well, no, fuck, Cannibal's actually not really a good name for the movie. Because there is some building of tension toward the beginning of the film. You don't know it's a cannibal. And if you hadn't seen the film, at least you know now that it's a cannibal. Like I said, the whole spoiler thing's fuck off. Get out of here. It's death by DVD. We're just talking about the movie. We're not doing a whole, here's point A to point Z, and I'm going to tell you every detail of the plot. No. Nah. We're just going to talk about this cult classic exploitation legend of a film by Joe Diamanto.
mysterious house, tortured by a malevolent force, destined to discover the hidden room in the realm of the Grim Reaper. One by one, he tracks them down. One by one, they disappear. One by one, they come face to face with the ultimate terror. He's coming for you. The Grim Reaper. Honestly, I don't feel that Joe D'Amato actually made any movies that would fit into traditionally what you would consider the cannibal genre. Most films that are a part of that genre all have very specific elements that line up with each other. Most of them, obviously all of them are exploitation, but most of them are going to a certain part of South America, almost entirely the Amazon. Sometimes you get some variety. And white people who shouldn't have been there in the first place get introduced to cannibals and there's some sort of plight. Most famously, you have Ruggiero Diodato's Cannibal Holocaust, and then you've got Umberto Lindsay's Cannibal Ferox, which will be referenced further on down the line on this episode. And there was a boom in the mid to late 70s into around, I would say, around 88, maybe 87 of this specific genre of film, and then it completely died. You have the film by Eli Roth. The Green Inferno, which I'll just straight up say I don't care for. It's like a mock cannibal film. He's very much trying to make homages to the great era, but it didn't last long, and, and people have made films uh, beforehand and after because you could, I'd say you were wrong, but you could try and have the argument that uh, Night of the Living Dead is an early predecessor of the cannibal film. Really where they came from were Mondo movies. Which, this isn't a show about the history of cannibal films, but I'll go on for just a little while longer. And I'll stop myself for a brief moment, because I did say Joe Diamato didn't really contribute that much to the cannibal genre, and Anthropophagus is, is very much given a place in the cannibal genre, but it doesn't really fit with what it takes to have one of these films in this weird little blip of a time period. But he did do Emmanuel in The Last Cannibals, and I think it was called... Love Goddess of the Cannibals? I've not seen that. But I have seen Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. More of a skin flick than a core cannibal movie. You've got, I mean, Jess Franco did Mondo Cannibal and Devil Hunter. And then you've got Umberto Lindsay, who did the second most famous, in my opinion, cannibal film, Cannibal Ferox, but he also did Man from Deep River, and then Eaten Alive, which has Robert Kerman and Ivan Razumov, which are kind of important to the entire genre itself, this this ill-lived genre, because Razumov was in pretty much the original 
cannibal movie. I do believe Eaten Alive also has Mimi Lay in it, so there's a Emmanuel connection. I think Mel Ferrer also is in Eaten Alive. And for some reason, I always confuse Eaten Alive with Cut and Run, which is a completely different movie by Ruggiero Diodato and written by Dardando Sacchetti. And that one is, is a little bit different than the average cannibal film. You've got a whole Jim Jones angle going on, but Richard Lynch is just so fantastic in that movie and Michael Berryman and Karen Black. But Umberto Lindsay in 72 did Man from Deep River. Then you've got Mondo Cannibal, which is Diodato, 1977. Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals is 77 also. Sergio Martino did The Mountain of the Cannibal God. Joe D'Amato comes back with Love Goddess of the Cannibals. The big one, 1980. Cannibal Holocaust, the definitive cannibal film. That's really the direction of the genre. And I'm sorry, Diodato did Ultimate Mondo Cannibal because you've got Jess Franco's Mondo Cannibal 1980 or Cannibal World, White Cannibal Queen, A Woman for the Cannibals, Barbarian Goddess. And that one stars Al Cliver. And all of these people are exploitation legends. But none of these people are George Eastman or Joe Diamato, which are the subject matter for the episode. You got a, a half-assed brief history of cannibal films here and why I felt it was important to bring that up lets us divulge more into Anthropophagus because I think this movie is constantly misgenred. Now, yeah, it's a horror movie, but it's not a horror cannibal movie. It's a horror exploitation movie, and in fact, it's more or less an exploitation horror movie than anything else. And the arrangement of these words does matter. Now, I feel Anthropophagus is Exploitation 101. This is a movie, and I don't mean to be callous, I don't mean to be standing on a soapbox, but this is a movie I feel, as a fan of Death by DVD, let's say it that way, you probably should have seen this by now. This is a movie you end up seeing very early on when you are an exploitation fan. Most of us all know about this film and the lore of this film and why it's generally revered as a cult classic. And that's something I want to dive into on this episode, cult classic and what it means, but I don't think we're at the place for it yet, so knock on wood. Let's hope that I can remember to talk about that later on throughout the episode. Now, if you haven't seen this movie... There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a poser. It doesn't really matter. I feel when you're into this sort of stuff, you've seen this movie and you've heard a lot of people talk about it before. There's a fantastic disc release of this that Severn Films put out. It has been spoken of since it came out. Uh, I, the popularity of this movie surged because it became one of the legendary video nasties. In fact, this film and the next movie that Joe Diamato made, Absurd, both of them are video nasties, and both of them, if you're looking at the list alphabetically, are the first two that you will discover, Anthropophagus and Absurd. And somewhat, Absurd is a bit of a sequel. None, the films aren't connected in the least bit, but it's sharing a lot of motivation, and I think a lot of the motivation from this film, Anthropophagus, certainly comes from Bob Clark and John Carpenter. you got Black Christmas and Halloween. 
I like to add Bob Clark just in respect. Anytime I can talk about that beautiful man, I will. But more Halloween than anything else. And the following film, Absurd, which we aren't talking about on this episode. We're talking about Anthropophagus. Absurd is much, much more of a Halloween knockoff. And I like it. I, I will say right now, I guess I should save this for the end of the episode, I also like Anthropophagus. And that's a good jump in to get into this movie because it's complained about a lot. Some people will say it's very similar to a travel log, which I think is incorrect and let's just say wrong. First maybe five to ten minutes, let's let's be honest, maybe fifteen. The first fifteen minutes of the movie, there is some travelogue-esque shots, mostly of Athens. The film begins in Athens and what is this movie about? Well, it's a group of friends who end up on this Greek island and people start dying. It's got the aspects of a traditional slasher film, but I hesitate to call this a slasher film. I would put exploitation over that, but I do think there's a big difference in those genres because a lot of films can be a slasher film and an exploitation film. Most slasher films are exploitation films. They are not non-inclusive. You know, any set genre of a film could also be an exploitation film, and so on and so forth. But the traditional aspects, as with the traditional aspects of what makes a quote-unquote cannibal genre film, are very much lacking. And borrowed cleverly, I think I can get away with saying cleverly, from John Carpenter's Halloween, but the director of this film, Joe Diamato, I think on technical aspects was much more familiar with the craft of filmmaking in 1980 than John Carpenter was. Now, John Carpenter is, is a brilliant, brilliant man. He won an Academy Award for a student film and then went on to make one of the most legendary movies directly after that, Dark Star. And then, of course, Halloween and all the other movies that you love so much. He is an exuberant craftsman and brilliant at what he does, but Joe Diamato was what I call a workhorse. The man made movies for a living. And when you go to IMDb or Wikipedia and you look up the amount of films that Diamato made, that's what he came in to do. He came in to shoot a fucking movie and get it over with under time, under budget, so he could keep that money and make another movie. He was a gun, he was smooth, and one of the fastest guns in Italy. And he made some remarkable movies that are going to be remembered for the whole length of time because some of them are so goddamn dirty and so offensive, they have shocked people, like Anthropophagus, to the point that it was banned by the BBFC in one of the first films to actually, not just alphabetically, but to be banned for the famed Video Nasties list. And all that did was make people want to see it more than anything else. Now, it is slightly boring. I'll give credence to a lot of critics that say that. There is a great deal of silence in this movie. Of course, there's soundtrack. In fact, the movie begins with this kind of mandolin Greek music. And every single time I watch this movie, I just can't help but think of Guy Ritchie. <laughs> it's that same, like, Snatch specifically. It's got that same sort of mandolin, uh, Romanian, Italian sort of sound to it. Greek, because the movie begins in Athens. 
But every time, never fails that I put on Anthropophagus, I immediately just start thinking of Snatch, and I'm just waiting for when all of our characters are introduced, Jason Statham to be standing there doing some wacky monologue. You know, I could fancy a Greek island getaway. It sounds nothing like Jason Statham. I'm going to stop it right there. We'll just cut in a Jason Statham impersonation. My name is Turkish. Funny name for an Englishman, I know. My parents-to-be were on the same plane when it crashed. That's how they met. They named me after the name of the plane. Not many people are named after a plane crash. That's Tommy. He tells people he was named after a gun. But I know he was really named after a famous 19th century ballet dancer. Known him for as long as I can And it seems really light-hearted. And like I said, this movie's about a group of people who end up on a Greek island and they start dying. At the beginning of the movie, we get this false entry that, despite me saying all this stuff about John Carpenter and Halloween and how this movie has a slasher movie pacing, the beginning of the movie is like a Jaws knockoff scene. And I've always really liked it because it seems out of place. You think you're going to be introduced to your characters and you've got these two people that are on the beach. One puts on a pair of headphones, they're sitting on the beach, and the other one decides that they're going to go out for a swim. And they're attacked by something. And the shots begin underwater. So it's alluring. You're like, this is a fucking monster. It's a water monster. Is it a shark? What's going on? And mind you, this is 1980, so ripping off Jaws has been going on for five solid years at this point. It's nothing uncommon, especially with Joe D'Amato, who is one of the kings of the Italian knockoff. A successful movie would come out in the United States. Joe D'Amato, two weeks later, would have a ripoff version of it waiting and available for you. In fact, I think the project he was working on when he died was a... Italian showgirls knockoff and I think somebody finished that I don't know the name of it but I would love to see it just to see the final work of Joe Diamato and also see an Italian showgirls knockoff but immediately right off the bat we get two victims of this unseen monster and of course because I ruined it at the beginning of the fucking episode if you know what the word anthropophagus means it's like cannibals cannibals something's going on and if you've seen the movie before, you already know what's happened. And then after that little stinger, we get introduced to our characters. Three guys, three girls, which some of our cast is alluring because of who they are related to and others became famous. You've got Margaret Mazzantini. She plays Rita. She went on to become quite a successful novelist and her husband has translated several of her novels into film, one of which has Penelope Cruz in it. Serena Grandi plays Maggie. She was credited under the name Vanessa Steiger. And here, I guess, is a good point to talk about why the director of this movie, the writer of this movie, and Serena Grandi used fake names. For one, you wanted to sell the movie to an American audience so they would use American names. It would be much more accessible. And for the sake of the director of this film, Aristide Massachusetts, a lot more easy to pronounce. You don't have to worry about the foreign press fucking your name up as much. And Joe Diamato did everything. He did hardcore porn. He did softcore porn. He did gore movies. He did political movies. He did action movies. He did westerns. He did drama movies. He did TV movies. He shot TV shows. And for dozens of his products, like when he did hardcore porns, he would shoot under a different name so he wouldn't be known as, oh, that guy makes fuck films with huge close-ups of pubic hair and cock, which may or may not be true. You'll have to explore the body of Joe Diamato's work, pun intended, yourself. 
George Eastman, just the same thing. George Eastman and Joe actually met because of writing. George was an actor, but he also was working as a writer and a script doctor and would just power through faulty scripts. And I don't remember the exact story, but he had met Joe Diamato and had ended up doctoring a script for him because a talent might have been Franco Nero. Don't think so, but didn't want to do the movie because the script sucked. Eastman fixed it. Boom, 24 hours, no stopping, wrote this thing, the actor ended up liking it, and their beautiful relationship was formed after that. Both of them worked together quite a bit throughout their respective careers, and both are impressive. George Eastman has written countless exploitation classics, but he's been in a great deal of them also. And Joe Diamato, the director of this movie, he really is one of the most significant and important exploitation directors because of his ability as a director. There was never any fucking around with Joe Diamato. When he set up shop, he set up and he filmed and he knew what to do. There was no second guessing. There was no 72 takes. It was, let's get the job done and we'll all fix it in post. And that might not be the greatest attitude to take toward filmmaking, but as I said previously, this guy was a career filmmaker. This was his job. This wasn't his passion. I think, personally speaking, that Joe D'Amato loved what he did, and that's why he did what he did. And I do think he had uh, an art form, an artistic integrity to what he did, but for the most part, it was a 9-to-5, and you went to work, and you banged that motherfucker out, and you got that job done so you could go on and make more. And you've got an artistic spectrum of that, of making so much stuff it's immortal, but so many of his films he's also uncredited for. And most of these movies were never meant to be seen as they are now. Severin Films have released this movie on Blu-ray. I believe it's a 2K restoration. These movies were shot with the lowest quality film stock and the, the lowest amount of money possible because they were playing at drive-ins. They were just being sold as products and there was never any intention for them to look as good as they do now. And I really think that like, if Joe D'Amato was still around, it would shock him. He would be in such awe that his films are blown up and restored and so much time is put into showing new audiences that, which is for me partially one of the reasons that I, I want to talk about this movie, and I am talking about this movie for an episode of Death by DVD. We have been doing an entire segment for about three, maybe four years now, the video nasties A through Z with Death by DVD, and this was the first film on that episode that I don't recommend you go listen to because the audio quality is awful. And sure, we've talked about it before, but I've been thinking really long and hard. <laughs> long and hard. And I, I really want to make the direction of this program that you're listening to more about showing you and introducing you to weird and wacky stuff that you may have not seen before, and if you have seen it before, to give further evaluation to. And that takes me all the way back to a little while ago saying that a lot of people think this movie's boring, and I can be condemned of saying the same thing, but as Tisa Farrow passed away, I believe she passed away on January 10th, 2024, I watched the movie and was a little shocked with my previous assessments of it of, well, you know what, it's not really like travel log footage, and it's really not quite as boring as I remember it being. 
the first 10 to 20 minutes of the movie, as you're being introduced to all the characters, you've got that stinger of an opening that turns out to be a misrepresentation of your introduction to the characters. Then you actually get to meet them. I believe all these shots at the beginning of the film were in Athens, and if you think I'm going to tell you the rest of the filming locations, you're fucking wrong, because I do not know what they are. They're islands. They're Greek. They're Greek islands. I guarantee you, you can find it out on IMDb for yourself. You've got a lot of wide roaming shots of the area and of locals and of people. And what I like about that is you get crowds of people. You have the characters and they're frolicking about. They're meeting up with their friend and then they're going to go island hopping. And you get to see their personalities, but it's warm and it's bright and you see other people. Because the rest of the movie is shockingly vacant of human life whatsoever. And it really begins when you're watching it, especially in the perfect settings. Like, this is one of those movies you need to watch in a dark room, possibly because most of the movie's in pretty low light, and it makes it hard to see if you're sitting in front of a window or something. But you take it in as the adventure goes, and we have, like I said, three guys, three girls, and slowly the herd gets thinned. But you notice, spectacularly, that there's no one else around. There are no people whatsoever and it would appear what's happening in the movie almost seems true so it's a little transcendental and that goes to the credit of Joe D'Amato because he knew what he was doing he came out to make a product I think he put product over the idea of artistry or craftsmanship sometimes that it was this is what we're gonna do bang 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 let's get it out no well let's wait until 4.15, so there's a perfect crescendo of sun that falls over the camera. Just get the motherfucker done. So let's get back to the cast. Mark Bowden is Daniel, Bob Larson as Arnold, Severio Valone as Andy, George Eastman as Klaus Wartman, and then Tisa Farrow as Julie. Tisa Farrow joins this group of people as an outsider. After we've been introduced to our lead cast of characters, Kisa Farrow gets dumped in, and she overhears them talking about how they're going to island hop, and one of them's pregnant, and, and she hears about them having to change a bit of their plans because of her pregnancy, and... Ooh, I forgot to mention, too, Zora Karova's in this film. All you exploitation hounds out there will recognize her name from... Umberto Lindsay's Cannibal Ferox, one of the most famous scenes of that entire movie. It's hard to really pick what is the most famous scene. You've got the old dick cut off Arino with Giovanni Lombardo Radice, and then Zora Karova, the spikes through the boobs. Oh, man. But that's the poster. You know, her face is, is on the poster. So, Tisa Farrow as well, Zora Karova, you've got some Exploitation Hall of Fame members here. Tisa is. The youngest of all the pharaohs, her mother was Marino Sullivan, and her father John Pharaoh, her older sister, is Mia Pharaoh. This is actually one of her last films. After this, she did, also in 1980, The Last Hunter, which is by Antonio Margretti, and has David Warbeck, another exploitation legend in it, Anthropophagus, but the year before, in 79, she did Zombie 2, and played Anne in that, Lucio Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters, or aka Zombie, Dawn of the Dead 2, unofficially. I think she's more recognized to exploitation fans from Zombie 2 than anything else. But I don't know how I left out Zora Karova. I'm sorry. Apologies on my end. Gotta put some respect on Zora's name. You get introduced to Tisa's character because she 
is a caretaker and needs to go visit one of these islands. She's not been able to get in contact with the family on this island, and everyone happily agrees to do so with her. And that's the story. That sets everything in motion. You can really say, as Joe Bob Briggs says here, the story does not get in the way of the plot. Plot is very simple. These people go to an island, and something rotten is going to happen to them on the island. But the story kind of ends there. You're introduced to everything, and now that you know the characters were melding forces here, and Tisa Farrow joins them, and they're doing her a favor by taking her to this island to find this girl she's supposed to be taking care of. And that sets all the actions of the movie into motion, and it moves pretty flawlessly from there on out. Now, there are a great deal of scenes that have no dialogue, and there's overpowering music that's going throughout it. And I will say, it's annoying that it's entirely a dub. You don't even get to hear Tisa's voice. She was dubbed by Carolyn De Fonseca. I do think, though, in Fulci's Zombie, you get to hear her voice. And it's easy to push this film away as cheap sleaze and cheap exploitation, but I think there is a little bit more to it. I know there was a full script that existed before George Eastman had involvement with it. And George Eastman sat down and went over everything with a fine-tooth comb and came up with some of the most legendary sequences in this movie. I started this show off with a joke about baby eating because we got some sweet, sweet baby eating in this episode. I don't know if anyone has ever said sweet, sweet baby eating before on a podcast, but... There's a first time for everything. And some additional scenes of incredible shocking violence. The baby eating's why it was put on the BBFC's list and became a banned movie in the Video Nasties. But there's a lot more. The, the Video Nasties list is insane. This is one of those movies, too, that you hear about so much. You read about it so much, and then you watch it. And it's a lot more tame than you expected things to be. I always found it kind of funny that people were very acceptant of this film, but would starkly refuse to watch Cannibal Holocaust. Well, I, I just can't watch a movie like that because of the animals. Uh, it's terrible what they did to the animals. But a fucking baby gets eaten in this goddamn movie, and nobody bats an eyelash, which seems like something that is happening worldwide. People are very upset because certain people didn't get nominated for a feature-length dog commercial, as, what's the statistic? Two mothers are dying per ten hours in a certain place in the Middle East that we're not supposed to talk about. But that's a different story, I guess, for a different day. But it really has always bothered me with Cannibal Holocaust, how it has gotten such infamy and such hate over the years. But, man... There is so much worse depicted, I feel, in this film. And this film is much more imaginative because Cannibal Holocaust is following a set story and a depiction of the awfulness of people, specifically Americans, and how fucking awful Americans are. And it's true. As to where this movie has no political agenda whatsoever. And that takes me back to the beginning and talking about art versus production. I think there's artistic integrity in this film, certainly, sure. But it's more of a production. It's more of a product. It's more of a, a consumable than anything else. It's cashing in on crazes and pushing the boom of horror that is just 
completely gone now, but man, especially in Italy in the 80s, this was a fucking hot commodity. With little story to get in the way of the plot, once our characters get to the island, it's just on. It just flows from that point. And I dare say, if you're bored, then maybe you're boring. And that's the problem, because this is a by-the-numbers exploitation film. I think this is a pinnacle of exploitation films, and we've dived a little bit into those titles, but you've got classics, but then you've got cult classics, and then you've got exploitation films. What's the difference between all these things? Can a classic be a cult classic? Can a cult movie also be a classic? Well, history and the fans are more left up to decide that than anything else. If... Anthropophagus hadn't been on the video nasty list, would it be as revered and renowned as it is now? I think it would have been. Even if the video nasties didn't exist, I think this work, because of the specific amount of violence, and you're not really exposed to an, an overwhelming amount, I really think, like, Dawn of the Dead, like Romero's Dawn of the Dead, I think that's more violent. Evil Dead... Sticking with movies with dead in their title by Sam Raimi. More blood, more violence than in this. You do have some really, really shocking scenes, and I will say the violence is pretty effective. It looks good, but not as much per minute of the fucking movie as some of the... And gosh, even... even like Friday the 13th? No, that one's stupid. Don't... no. That's... A, that's... that's not right. Cannibal Holocaust, though... Certainly less violence. Anthropophagus, that is. Features certainly less more violence than Cannibal Holocaust. And that's not why it's accepted by more audience members. And that's just because people are fickle. Because Cannibal Holocaust is a brilliant movie, and the political nature of that film is what makes it so overwhelmingly wonderful. And I, I think a lot of people that have beef with that movie, maybe it just went over their head. I don't know. But who am I to make assumptions like that? On that subject, though, this is not an articulate movie. This doesn't make you wonder. I mean, it does, kind of, but that's more or less because of what happens with the characters and the motivations of the characters. We're going to go ahead and get into deep spoiler territory here, so I'll still be a nice guy and give you a warning. But you got that first scene of the movie. What is this? Is it a predator? Is it a monster? Is it some underwater creature? No, it's a cannibal, because that's what the name of the movie is, Anthropophagus, and it means cannibal, because the movie's about a cannibal. But is he? Yeah, by all technical definitions, but it's not, like, ritualistic. It's... I'm, I brought up that there's this kind of motivation from Carpenter's Halloween, and that's where you could take some of the slasher aspects of this movie, but it really lacks the driving force. Now, the guy walks slow. You don't really get to see them very much. You do get similar shots as to, like, when Michael Myers' mask gets pulled off in Halloween, and there's this big shocking scene in the stairwell. There, I think, are some things that transcend back and forth where clearly Diamato was influenced by that. But Joe D'Amato was a really interesting guy. He wouldn't even see the movies he was knocking off. He would just get a brief synopsis from somebody and go, Okay, I think I can do that. That sounds about right. And then four days later, there would be a 90-minute film produced. It's, it's more about pacing than anything else, is where this can really take some similarities to the modern American slasher film. And of course, by modern American slasher film, I mean movies made between 1970 and 1979, since this came out in 1980. 
big ups to Bob Clark and John Carpenter. Even the shadowing in this movie, how much of it appears to be in the the dark and how much the character is only revealed to you in very coarse shadows, I think a lot of that is John Carpenter-esque. And that's another thing that made Joe D'Amato so brilliant is he could just watch a scene of somebody else's work and knock it off fairly well. He would rip it off to a point that it would be original enough on his own. And this movie has a lot of static regular shots. There's nothing incredibly artistic. There's nothing that blows your mind. Many of the island shots are very nice. The scenery is very nice. There's actually a pretty cool night for day segment in this that I've always really enjoyed because when the lightning flashes in this scene, it's just day again. (laughs) It takes place in in a forest setting, so it works for me, and I'm a stickler for that. I really get pissed off over lazy night for day shots, or day for night shots, rather. So the whole of this movie is the people get to the island and they all start dying. We do find another character on the island in an amazing sequence where somebody leaps out of a vat of wine, Margaret Mazzantini. But once they get to the island, to the end of the film, I can understand how you feel almost duelist and it it does get lethargic because they're kind of questing it almost has a video game feel like the first zelda game where you're just walking from one place to another and occasionally something stabs at you and jumps out at you like an rpg kind of thing they're set in this location no one is around and this is where a little bit of the art creeps in it's just gorgeous no one else is in this movie i don't know what they did to get all these islanders to fuck off but it sort of encroaches upon you you don't realize at first that there's no one else in the movie but our characters and it hits you at some point even though they talk about it they're searching this island and no one's on it bafflingly enough no one's on it and as the small bit of story comes forward you find out tisa Farrow's character julie the caretaker of this blind girl she knows a little bit about the island there was a man named klaus wortman whose family disappeared he and his family rather they were in a boating incident and were cast out onto sea which drove his sister crazy and now suddenly no one's on the island i don't really want to digress further into the story and the nuances and what happens because that's the enjoyment of watching it. When you have somebody that just from point A to point B goes through the entire plot synopsis of the movie, what the fuck do you have left to enjoy at that point? And what I'm attempting to do here is to push you to watching Anthropophagus. I'd like you to see this movie and tell me what you thought about this movie. Tell people, I fucking listened to Death by DVD and they made this turd sound kinda nice. And... (laughs) It's not... I, I have been rough on this movie in the past and I, I, I... You just gotta... No one to hold them, no one to show them, like goddamn Kenny Rogers said. But really, you just gotta grow into things. I don't think I ever appreciated this movie because I never really sat down and paid attention to it. All the things that I've brought up at the beginning of this episode, it's a cult classic, it's a classic. This is a movie that most exploitation and horror fans have seen very early on. That's because you read about it. And you hear about it, Chaz Balans Magazine, Deep Red, they talked about this all the time. It was in all the big rags, and of course, it's a video nasty, so it's Uh, lurid. You want to find something like this, and then you sit down and you're expecting a a mile-a-minute gore fest. You're expecting some of the most offensive stuff you've ever seen in your entire life, and none of that 
comes on screen, so it's very easy to dismiss it. Eh, this movie's boring. But I think it's well-paced. I think the silences and the distraught nature of the characters not even communicating with each other is a part of the film. And, of course, dubbing. It's an Italian horror movie, so the chances that this was shot with sound at all is slim to none. There was no sound, there was no boom operator, there was absolutely none of that. They had cameras, they had the actors, I'm sure it was a mixed cast of people speaking Italian, people speaking English, you got Zora Karova and Tisa Ferro speaking English and almost entirely everyone else is Italian. All this shit came together in post. The soundtrack, the vibes, the spooky okey okey ethereal noises. But I just don't think it's boring. Not as boring as half the other video nasties. And that's something you realize uh, uh, when you either take a venture into exploitation films or a video nasty fan. And it doesn't matter what type of horror fan you are. You can like whatever the hell you like, but you go off in the deep end and you hit that diving board. You start going through all of these films. And something that I have realized over the years is nearly none of the video nasties deserved their title. Most of them, and the infamy of most of these films, is because they were put on the video nasties list. Which takes us back to the question, would this movie have found any sort of cult or classic status? If it hadn't been for that list, I think yes. I think a great chunk of the work of Joe D'Amato still would be renowned and still would be looked at and discussed if it hadn't been banned, if it hadn't gotten in trouble, if it hadn't been so esoteric and violent. I still, and the same goes for Dear Dada's Cannibal Holocaust and House on the Edge of the Park, I think those movies would still be synonymous with cult and exploitation horror if they hadn't had gotten in any sort of trouble. And that really goes to the filmmakers being not just workhorses, because Diodato worked in the same industry, so did Lucio Fulci, but artists as well. It wasn't just going to work. They enjoyed that. They had flair, because Fulci himself, his horror films, they were just getting by. They were him working and making money. The films he really cared about, the romantic comedies and the, the late, stuff from the late 60s and one of the 70s, even Beatrice Cincy, those were the movies, which that's borderline horror. Those were the ones he really cared about a lot more. And he still showed up and put his whole ass into the horror films he made, The Beyond. Need I say more? So let's, at this point... Let's just talk about the real shocking sequences with this movie. You got the pregnant character. Well, she's not pregnant for long. A baby is ripped straight from her womb and eaten right in front of you, and that's pretty shocking. It's really graphic, too. They used the skinned rabbit for this scene to even push the effect on a little bit more, but I can't help but always giggle because it reminds me of David Cronenberg's The Brood. It looks like one of the weird baby egg sacks from that movie. It's a skinned rabbit. It doesn't it, it it gets the job done. And I had that whole back and forth with how people can prefer this over Cannibal Holocaust, but hey, somebody skinned a rabbit for this movie. Where's all the signs and anger and protesting? 
Which there was, you know, it's not like there wasn't. People were deeply offended by this movie and the other one. I'm just fucking drawing little lines in the sand here. And the most infamous thing about this movie is its end, the final sequence of the film. We find out, long story short, that Klaus Wortmann was stranded at sea with his wife and son. His son passed away. They're floating around on this little dinghy. He's getting burned by the sun, which explains his look throughout the film. When you're first introduced to the character, all you know is he's some sort of monster, and it's in a great flash of lightning. It's a very clever scene where he's standing behind a door, and his skin is all burnt up and flaking, and his hair has gone white, bleached by the sun, and you find out child passed away while they were lost at sea, and he said, fuck it, we're going to eat that kid that deeply upset his wife. She ends up getting killed in this struggle, and that's all we really know. How did he get back to the island? I have no fucking idea. There's a lot of plot holes in this movie if you really want to examine it, but it's really not the type of movie that you can damn and demand. You know what, Luigi Montefiore, you son of a bitch, I need to know how this bastard got back to the island. <sighs> he swam. I don't know, he had two bodies. He ate his kid and his wife, and that drove him mad, making him anthropophagus. Why? Who knows? I would like to know, sure, if we could hire Alan Dean Foster to write the film novelization for this movie, I would like to know more, but in the pretense of the film and what we're watching, it's kind of perfect. He ends up killing his wife, off-screen, probably eats her, and his son driven absolutely crazy by the sun itself, blaring down on him and burning him, gets back to the island, and he fucking kills and eats everyone. There are some really amazing shots of the Beast's lair, Klaus Wartman, George Eastman's character. Those were shot in catacombs on another island, and it's really unfortunate when they showed up. Most of the bodies that were in this catacomb had been there for several hundred years, so you had some femurs, maybe some toes, a couple skulls here and there, but not nearly enough as grisly as what would be suitable for this monster's lair. So they brought in tons and tons of fake bones and skulls, but when they're cleaning up the production at the end of the day, there was no, hey, is this real or is this fake? So a great deal of the actual bodies that had been in this catacomb were taken back to whatever studio... Joe Diamato was working for and probably left in prop departments. Who knows? They could still even be being used to this day. And as grisly as that is, unfortunately, it's not the only time that this happened while Joe Diamato was doing a production. He did Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, which also had George Eastman involved. A lot of scenes that were shot in a, a very extravagant cemetery, and they moved a bunch of crosses, they moved stuff around, and at the end of the day, they had no clue whose tombstone went where anymore. So there's some graveyard out in, I believe, Spain, where all the headstones got moved around by George Eastman and Joe D'Amato, and no one knows where the actual bodies are anymore. Kind of awful, reminiscent of something like poltergeist using actual skeletons for the swimming pool scene, but I think this is a little bit more interesting and definitely uh, a bit more brutal. I mean, some 700, 800-year-old Greek catacomb and all of a sudden all these bones are just shoved back in bags and taken to some prop department in Italy. That may be one of the darkest facts on Anthropophagus, which... I would like to say no fault to Joe Diamato, but yeah, that's a that's a big fault. You stole some bodies. Not intentionally, of course. But it's a great fact for the episode, isn't it? 
I think when you get to the final scene of this movie, you get Tisa Farrow and Severio Valone facing off against George Eastman. It's a, a visual that will be infamous forever in the annals of film, not just exploitation, not just cult cinema, not just cult classics, but it's so shocking and it's so disturbing. The final scene of the movie, I think, is what really sits everything on its axis and flips it all over because it makes you wonder more about the character and the depravity than anything else. George Eastman's Klaus Wortmann, his stomach is ripped open with a pickaxe, and he begins eating his own intestines fervently until he dies. So it's not a matter of hunger, it's just absolutely psychosis. This person has snapped, and their brain probably scrambled to an egg-like consistency because of exposure to the sun. They're just eating everything, filling the void. The void of their wife, the void of their son, and all their mistakes, just carnivorously eating and eating and eating. They've killed everyone on the island and taken it down to this pit like a spider. And it's just kind of perfect, because it just cuts right there, no credits, movie ends, you've got that Guy Ritchie sounding mandolin shit, and this dude just ate his own guts. And it makes you reflect. You've watched this filth, you've committed this act, and you're like, well, fucking Christ, he ate himself. He ate himself. And in 1980, you haven't seen anything like this before. There are tons of movies now, sure. But all of those movies are competing with the first time that you saw it. Auto-cannibalism. And that's the, like, operatic crescendo ending of the film, is auto-cannibalism. This monster eats everything. And that topples the baby scene. I don't even remember that scene anymore, because you just watched somebody eat their own intestines. You just watched them eat themselves. It's so fucked up, but it's so great. It's so rewarding. It makes you question everything, and it does make you, like, like feel a bit of safety has been lost. Is this director insane? Is this a dangerous person? Have I been watching a movie made by a madman? Which I know I've referenced it a lot before, but... You know, Cannibal Holocaust is such a distinct, different film. Ferox, I don't think, has the same touches. Ferox is much more mean-spirited and violent for the sake of violence. As to where Cannibal Holocaust, as I've already rambled, its political implications... I wouldn't say implications, I say it's far more than just implied. ...carries that movie to such a different level that the violence is not as shocking anymore. The violence seems almost expected from Americans. And if you thought that was sad for 1980, it's still sad to this day. And I think the entire truth, it is expected out of Americans. But there are no politics in Anthropophagus. There's just absolute violence. Joe Bob Briggs wrote about this movie in his first book, and I've always had a lot of regard for that review. I won't read the whole thing, but I do have it right in front of me. The Grim Reaper is the movie about a guy who will use a meat cleaver when he has to, but usually he just uses his mouth. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking vampire. So was I, but you're wrong. I won't tell you the whole deal, but the Grim Reaper is not a monster. He's a believable human being who likes to kill people and then chew on them for a while. Joe Bob goes on to give this movie three stars for scary and two and a half stars for story. 
story just doesn't matter in this instance. You get it so briefly, and I think for an exploitation film, for a cult film, and for a movie in general, you get it dumped right at the beginning, and you don't need anything else. You don't need any exposition. You don't need to know anything else about who these characters are and why they're doing what they're doing. It was explained to you so briefly and so perfectly. All that matters now is we watch the cascading death coming for us, lurching slowly, creeping into our lives. And it's impressive. It's horrifying. It's disgusting. It's impressive. All of this and more. Anthropophagus 1980 by Joe Diamato. Written by Joe Diamato and Luigi Montefiore, a.k.a. George Eastman. It's a quintessential viewing for me. You gotta see Anthropophagus. You gotta sit through it at least once in your life. And I think with that, my job here is done. Well, if I actually did my job at all. See, what I wanted to do was present you with Anthropophagus. You've learned a little bit about the movie, and you've got my opinion on it. No IMDB facts, I'm sorry. And I didn't, in grotesque detail, tell you scene by scene what happens. But that takes away from the art and production of the film itself, in my true and honest opinion. Watch it. Experience it. That's the point of something like Death by DVD. In fact, it's the entire point of this fucking show. You to experience something new. I love movies. It's my favorite form of art. I talk about that a lot on this show. But I specifically and especially love horror and cult and exploitation, the weird, the esoteric, the bizarre, cheesy, lost, exciting, awful movies. Movies that make you question your own sanity at the end of the day. Movies that will melt your brain into a sloppy wet pile of mush. An anthropophagus, my god, if it ain't one of those films, this is a driving classic. I'd love to see this blown up, man. I would love to see this on the big screen. All the gut-busting, baby-eating goodness. Oh, my lord, it would be fantastic. Even Joe Bob Briggs, he says, There are three really great scenes in this movie. One in a house where the girl, including a blind girl, are left alone wondering when the Reaper is going to show his molars. Another in the Reaper's crypt where he has a collection of about 50 moldy bodies. In the final scene when the Reaper chases a cute blonde girl and the blind girl through a creaky old mansion. There are some sights to be seen with this movie. But again, I'll repeat myself, I think it's quintessential viewing. This is a must for all exploitation fans, and if you are just starting this journey, 
Certainly, I hope I have pushed you into a direction of Joe D'Amato. Let Aristide Massachusi into your life. The beauty of Joe D'Amato is awaiting you. Over 200 films that we know of he has directed, credited under hundreds of names. The legacy of Joe D'Amato was far greater than any of us can really put a number on. Who knows how much he actually was involved with? Who knows how many movies he directed under other pseudonyms? Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, Beyond the Darkness, Black Cobra Woman, A Tour, Quest for the Mighty Sword, Death Smiles on a Murderer, 2020 Texas Gladiators, Blue Angel Cafe, Absurd, Anthropophagus. The Arena Beyond the Darkness, Caligula, The Untold Story, Deep Blood, half of the Emmanuel films, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, Emmanuel and the White Slave Trade, Emmanuel Around the World, Emmanuel in Bangkok, Emmanuel's Revenge, Emmanuel in America, Killing Birds, one of the zombie movies. That depends on your list of the actual movies in the zombie series, which is another episode for another day. Porno Holocaust. So much and more. Joe D'Amato, you could spend your entire life trying to watch every single one of his films, and I would salute you for that. And who knows, maybe someday soon we'll come back and talk more about the work of Joe D'Amato, or even do that zombie list I was just talking about. There's so many variants, but until then, that's it. You've reached the end of this episode of Death by DVD. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. I'm Harry Scott Sullivan your host, and until next time, pleasant tomorrows, and watch more horror. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. Wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.